Hi, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm uh, going to be talking about the Word of God tonight, Ephesians in particular. So we're just starting chapter 2. But I've got a confession to make before we start, and I don't know if any of you uh, would confess this with me. I'm a fan of romantic comedies. I can't help it. I like them. Uh, one of my favorite of all time is When Harry Met Sally. If you haven't seen that one, I highly recommend it. But normally in a romantic comedy, what you have is two people who, like, repel each other at the beginning of the movie. Isn't that true? Or at least one is running away from the other one continually, saying how she would never be with him, so to speak, or he would never be with her. And then somehow through the ups and downs of the movie, they finally come back together and then usually fall apart again. Then they come back together and they may fall apart again. And they finally come back together at the end and everybody lives happily ever after, no matter what has happened in between. So I think there's a reason, I think there's a spiritual reason that rom-coms go so deep among us. I really do. I think in some ways, this is going to sound crazy, but I think that God's pursuit of humanity throughout history is kind of like a giant, divine, romantic comedy. That's kind of where I'm at these days. And uh, we're going to talk about that. I think it might come out a little bit in the passage we read today. You're not going to get it. At, well, we're going to read this all the way through, and I promise you, you will not see any connection. Let's hope as we go through the message today, you will. So I call this Masterpiece Theater because it's not just any old romantic comedy. It's We are God's masterpieces, and uh, the theater is romantic comedy, okay? All right. Should be up there, Ephesians 2.1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages... He might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Again, in the Greek, this is like one giant long sentence. Paul has just got done in chapter 1 talking about how awesome God is. Just one giant long run-on sentence there just going on and on about how awesome God is, right? 
And then there's the big switch in chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, you are dead. It's like the big switch. And so we're going to go through this bit by bit. Next slide. This is an old logo, an old t-shirt. I thought it'd be a nice break in between. Go ahead. Next one. There we go. All right. Let's read this again, chunk by chunk. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I think the most difficult thing for us to grasp in this passage is how bad we really were off. For the most part, I don't think we see ourselves nearly as bad as Paul was painting this picture here of what we're like. He's painting a picture of spiritual zombies, is what he's painting. Walking dead people. People who are spiritually dead, but physically alive. We have chosen to follow our own desires. And our society then has reinforced our choices. But rather than bringing satisfaction to us, it actually has made us subject to the wrath of God. So, I don't want you to take this too far. Obviously, God made the earth, and he made people, and he loves them. Paul is being a bit theatrical here. This is a romantic comedy, after all. I mean, you can find evidence of God in humanity. But Paul was saying, spiritually speaking, we're dead. That God wants to love us, but we are not responding. You might think his description of life without Jesus is probably too harsh. But, you know, I was just talking beforehand with someone about uh, what happened in World War II. There were Greek villages that were totally wiped out by the Nazis. It wasn't just Greek villages. It was all over Eastern Europe. As the, as the Nazis came through, the Germans came through, they slaughtered people. Obviously, Jews were taken off to concentration camps, death camps. And then as the Russians came back across Eastern Europe, they did the same thing to the Germans who were left and to other people that they wanted to get out of the way. If you don't think it could happen again, you are terribly wrong. You're not paying attention to what's going on around the world right now. Middle East, Africa. We are bad people. Left to our own devices. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, we say. The ancient Greeks had a philosophy... They called it soma sema, which means the body is a tomb. 
that they understood that their souls were alive and that things were somehow sparking on the inside in terms of their souls, but their bodies were decaying and dying. Maybe you don't understand this if you're all young, but you get it as you grow older. I mean, you can go to the Old Testament passages like Psalm 90, to uh, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah 40, and you get the idea that even the Old Testament Jews understood things weren't exactly the way they ought to be. Humanity is, we suck, basically. Even in religions like Hinduism, you know, you're trying to escape the wheel of life, you know, get reincarnated over and over again, shoot, until finally you don't have to be reincarnated anymore. So it's a common human problem. We all know the earth sucks and that we suck. I mean, you think about our suicide rate. You think about escapism through alcohol, through drugs, and what it does to families. Think about disease. You think about death. Death haunts us. It's our destiny. One billion people live in dire poverty. Living death may be a too soft description, actually. And the idea here is, um, does God get angry about it? We were by nature deserving of his wrath. Hell yeah, God gets angry about it. People who don't get angry are people who don't care. That's my estimation. When God sees the way we treat each other, it makes them angry. And if you don't get angry about an Olympic and university physician who abuses hundreds of young girls, aspiring gymnasts, for his own sick pleasure, if you're not angry about that, there's something wrong with you. You just don't care. So yeah, God gets angry. I don't know, Darren. And so, don't let this passage lead you to believe that God is angry at humans, and then, but Jesus loves them, and so Jesus comes and dies for us. No. That was the plan from God all along. Christ loves them and gains God's favor for them by dying on the cross because that was God's plan from the beginning. You see, it's like in a romantic comedy. When one person says, I don't want anything to do with you. I want to live my own life. I don't care about you. I don't care about what you think of me. I'm going to do my own thing. And meanwhile, the other one is pursuing all the time. It starts out just like a romantic comedy. 
Romans 5.8 says that God loved us while we were still sinners. No division exists between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And I want you to know that, that this is one of those passages that tells you who our enemies are as a human race. It's, it's kind of all here. Number one, it's the world we live in. Number two, no, no, no. I'm ahead of myself. I'll come to that later. Sorry. Let's go to the next slide. So how bad are we? Pretty bad. And the weird thing about, about um, love is this, that, that if you think you are good for someone, you might not be in love yourself. Do you ever notice? I mean, if, if you're doing somebody a favor by being her boyfriend or by being his girlfriend, you know, I, I think you need to check whether or not you're really in love with that person. The Bible paints a picture for us that we are not good for God in the least. We are the antithesis of what he ought to be looking for. And does God get angry? Obviously, yes, he does. Let's go to the next slide. Ephesians 2.4 But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were Dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So i um, got a question for you in the movie um, When Harry Met Sally or any of the rom-com. You can think of. Did the two people have a free will to choose each other, or was it predestined that they get together by the end of the film? What do you think? Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. We don't know. So the theological question becomes this Do we have a choice when it comes to responding to God's amorous advances to us? Or does God say, I'm going to win their hearts by wooing them over and over and over again? And I think that the context of Ephesians is this, is that God wins our hearts in spite of our free will. That's what I think is going on here. God wins our hearts in spite of our free will. That grace somehow is the romantic comedy of human history. Irresistible grace. You could resist if you wanted to. But you don't want to. <laughs> I mean, you could tell God, forget it. I don't care about you. But you really don't want to do that. Otherwise, 
you wouldn't be here listening to me talk. There's no way. You'd be watching the Olympics. So I'm thinking about this romantic comedy scene that somehow goes along with uh, Ephesians 2. So I picture um, a wedding night all set up. The, uh, the groom has gotten the bridal suite. He's made sure there's candles and low light. And there's soft music playing in the background. He's ordered room service champagne and chocolates. I'm thinking there's like saxophone jazz playing in the background. That's what I'm thinking. And you know, he comes to his bride, but, but his bride is a corpse. His bride is dead as a doornail lying on the bed. That's kind of what I'm seeing as going on here. And because God is God, he goes through all this stuff to make sure that his bride is brought back to life. Or brought to life maybe for the first time. Because he loves her so much. Maybe that's part of the rom-com of Ephesians 2. Grace is the key ingredient, you know? Unmerited, undeserved love. Devotion. God is crazy about us. And I don't know why. He's crazy about us. Let's go to the next slide. So God wins our hearts in spite of our free will. And grace is the romantic comedy of human history. Hepburn and Tracy. Tom Hicks, Meg Ryan. I mean, come on. Iconic romantic comedy actors, right? God is pursuing us. Just like in the romantic comedies. Okay, let's go on to verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, here's the deal. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is sin, as far as the Bible is concerned. I mean, you've got to be saved from something, right? And this passage is a really good job of talking about the sin that we have inside of us that talks about um, the world and how it drags us down. It talks about the devil and how he likes to mess things up. 
that we've been saved by grace. The problem is, I think, that we either take God's love for granted and has no impact on our lives, or uh, we reject that God could be so loving and caring to someone who's as much of a jerk as we are. Okay, let, let me say that again. I think there's two possible reactions a lot of us have. And one is that we take God's love for granted because, and there's no big impact in our lives. Like you read Ephesians 2 and you go, oh, okay, that's good. Big deal. Or that you go, I get it, and there's no way God could love me. You, you don't know what I've done, Mike. If you knew what I've done and what I've thought and what I've said... There is, there is no way you would let me in your church, even though it's called scum of the earth. There's no way. Let's go to the next slide. So what's faith? Talking about faith here, right? For it's by grace we've been saved through faith. Faith is more than just a, a mental assent or believing certain ideas. All right? You all are exhibiting faith right now by sitting in the chairs you're sitting in. If you didn't trust that that chair was going to hold your weight, you wouldn't be sitting in it. You're exercising faith because faith means trust. Reliability. That you can bank on the promise. There's a good pledge here that there's proof that you have confidence in God. That you're convinced that God can do what He says He's going to do. It's the act of relying on something that is believed reliable. Faith is the act of relying on something that you believe is reliable. That's all it is. You do it every time you get in your car and turn the ignition key. You believe the car's going to start. Otherwise, you wouldn't turn the ignition key. That's all faith is. There's a story from Canada of a hunter who was stopped by a large stream that was winding through the forest. His pursuits were actually on the other side of the stream. It was cold. It was winter time. And he didn't know how to get across any other way, so he, he gets down on all fours to spread his weight out, he cautiously makes his way on the ice. Just gradually going on top of that ice-covered water. Then he gets in the middle of the stream. Then he hears a sound. Looks upstream. And behold, there was a logger with a team of horses and a wagon full of giant pine logs. And he was driving his wagon and his team of horses 
across the stream. Big, giant draft horses. And here the hunter was, gingerly on all fours, walking, crawling across the stream, gradually creeping. And I just want to say, I mean, that's me. I think that's you. I think that's scum of the earth. We're, we're like that. This, like we trust God. We have some faith in God. But not a lot. And then you look around and you see somebody else praying for people. Taking risks for the kingdom. Talking about Jesus in the middle of a coffee shop out loud. You're going, wow. Maybe the ice is thicker than I thought it was. Because it's the grace of God that saves us. It's the grace of God that saves us. You only need a little bit of faith. The grace is thick and able to bear you up. Faith is a thing that's got like a sticky quality to it, you know? <laughs> you, you just glue yourself to Jesus. I don't know if you guys have ever been through tough times in your life, but I have. And let me tell you, I literally just cling on to Jesus because everything else is falling apart. I mean, you can be in seasons of life where your marriage is falling apart, where your relationship with your kids isn't what you want it to be, where finances are a disaster, where things are terrible at work, where even the people at church are annoying you. Who are you going to hold on to? I mean, I've, Jesus, I have no place else to go except for you. But here's my challenge to you. Here's my question. What is God asking from you to do? Something that requires trust, assurance, confidence, in Him, what is God asking you to do? Is there anything He's asking you to do? That, that maybe you can get up and walk confidently as opposed to getting on all fours and just creeping? Because you are with Christ. You are in Christ. The adhesion is so tight that Paul says we are in Christ. We are seated with Him, in Him, in heavenly places. Salvation doesn't come from believing ideas or from church attendance or an emotional decision. It comes from being bound to Christ, holding on to Him as tightly as you possibly can. Let's go to the next slide. I want to go over this. 
The last verse. For we are God's handiwork. Other translations say, we are God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The passage really doesn't tell us to do anything. It says we will do things. It doesn't say what we're doing except being in Christ. You're not supposed to do anything except for that for which you're created. How does God's wooing, how does this romantic comedy, how does that change your life? That, that's that's the, a question. How does God's wooing you change your life? At the end of the movie, when you get together with God, what does that look like? What happens after the film is over? Because all the rom-coms stop, right, with the wedding, right? If it's a comedy, it ends with a wedding. If it's a tragedy, it usually begins with one, okay? So that's the way the movies work. That's the way Shakespeare works, at least. So, what happens after? Where are you going to live? Are you going to live in Christ? Or are you going to live in the world? Who are you going to be subject to? Are you going to be subject to Jesus Christ? Or to the rulers, the demons, the powers that be in this spiritual realms? Are you going to do the kind of things that he says to do, or are you going to listen to your own fleshly desires and follow that road to a dead end? If you know that you are the desired of God, if you know who you are, if you know that you're the beloved who's being pursued by God in this divine romantic comedy, if you know who you are, then you know how to live. That's my point. If you knew how desperately you were loved, then you would know how to live. We are God's handiwork, God's masterpiece, created in Jesus to do good works which He prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I'm not talking about your job necessarily, although obviously God has allowed you to be working there where you are, but it's bigger than that. What's the purpose of your life? What did God place you here to do? It's got to be more than just scraping by to make a living. To make ends meet. To buy clothes. And to buy food. And to buy a car. And put gas in it. It's got to be more than that, right? I think this is your adventure with God, frankly. Ephesians 2 sets us up for an adventure with God. It's the reason for the divine rom-com. It's a love story with you and God as the main characters. And this church is a supporting cast. I would love to be a supporting cast member for your Romantic comedy with the Almighty.
You can do things that bring you money, but when you work with God, you get a love story. You get an action movie. You get an adventure flick all at the same time. Your life has a purpose. It doesn't matter how your mommy and daddy hooked up. Your life was ordained by God. You've got a purpose. It doesn't matter what school you went to or didn't go to. You've got a purpose in God. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. God has a purpose for you. If you are sucking wind at this precise moment, God has a purpose for your life, and it's not a mediocre one, because God doesn't do bad flicks. You don't have to let life happen to you. God's got an agenda. God's got a purpose. God's got a plan. And the amazing thing is, you get to discover it while you're in the rom-com. You get to figure it out. Frankly, it begins by putting your trust in Jesus. It begins by putting your faith in Jesus. And by His grace, He will save you. It's not just some kind of verbal assent. It is Holding on to him is adhering to him with everything that you have. You can make that decision right here and right now. Is it predestined? Or is it your choice? Yeah, it is. You can do that when we take communion. Jesus gathered his closest friends, the ones he had been pursuing on the earth for three years. And he got them together for a final meal before he went to the cross. And he said, I want you to, from now on, I want you to take this bread and eat it. This is my body given for you. Remember what I'm doing for you. And I want you to take this cup, and it's the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And let me just say, I can't think of a better way to signify placing your trust in Jesus than by taking communion. For the first time, for the tenth time, for the one thousandth time, it doesn't matter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are amazing. You have pursued us with a relentless love. And I just want to say how grateful I am how grateful we are that you pursue us individually, that you pursue us corporately. We love you. And we lived happily ever after. And in Jesus' name, amen.